The scripture reading this morning is Mark 15:33 through 47. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and he filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone and let's see if Elijah will come and take him down, they said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. And so Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. And then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he laid him. I think we could say that any relationship uh, is in danger of, um, or always at risk of getting stale and becoming too familiar. And uh, we get too close to things or to people and they become kind of locked in our minds and we lose the affections of the heart for uh, whatever that, whoever that is, whatever that is. And it happens in, in marriages, it happens in uh, parent-child relationships, and it happens with God. It happens with his story. And so we talk about this thing called the gospel, and uh, Christians uh, will say, I know, I know the thought process, is you say, oh, I've heard that before. And um, it, it becomes old to us. And so we, we have this story that, that freshens that up for us. Familiarity may not breed contempt, but at least it takes the, the edge off of that. So we forget that we're a miracle. That's one of the results that happens when we lose the, uh, the beauty of the gospel. Uh, is it, we lose sight of the fact that because of the gospel, we are a miracle because it's based in a miracle, the death and then resurrection that we'll celebrate next week. So uh, what we want to allow Mark to do this mark is to uh, take this story that we've heard before which is so multifaceted there's no way you can ever uh, completely understand the love of God Paul says it's immeasurable we can just come at it again and renew ourselves dip our toe into it get renewed 
And so that's my hope for you, for me this morning. We're in the 42nd week, if anybody's counting, in this, uh, in this series out of Mark's Gospel. And we started in, in verse 1, chapter 1. And now, uh, aren't you glad this isn't the last chapter? Isn't that, I mean, that's really part of the good news, that we have one more week. And, uh, but this is holy ground. This is really holy ground as we actually come to the place where Jesus dies on that cross. So uh, Mark has, has kind of set us up for this worst of all climaxes, but that turns out to not be a climax. And um, he wants us to digest, the Holy Spirit wants us to digest what is really going on here as he tells the story. And to best digest something, it's better to get not just our minds involved, but to get into our imaginations, our hearts. And, and another thing would be to come for communion. We're going to do communion later on. And to actually touch and to uh, smell and taste what is for us the body and blood of Christ. So uh, we'll have that. And while we're doing that, or just after we do that, uh, the kids will, will come back in, and Nancy mentioned that, but they'll come back in, and they, they are making crowns, and they're going to put uh, those crowns down at the cross, the place where Jesus, the crucified king, uh, was. And so uh, that's, that'll be happening a little bit later as well. I want to give you an overview here. I'm gonna, um, there's, I just want to say very humbly there's so much that could be said about this particular passage as we see Jesus say it is finished or hear him say that. And so we're going to focus in, though, on these three verses. They'll spill over a bit, but uh, the darkness that comes over the land, verse 33, the darkness that comes over Jesus and the darkness uh, as it approaches on that particular day, some events happen, and that's where we'll get into our communion. All right, so let me read to you uh, the verse 33. At the sixth hour, um, actually that would be at noon, in the, the Hebrew way of uh, uh, counting time would be, uh, the sixth hour would be noon. And we want to remember that Jesus was nailed to the cross at nine o'clock in the morning. And that would be the third hour. And then at the ninth hour, uh, would be three o'clock is when he breathes his last. So that's the that's the chronology of of that day. But what what Mark wants us to know is that at the sixth hour at noon, darkness came over the land until the ninth hour or until three o'clock. So um, in the the Bible, darkness is. Um, it, 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 it would be just imagine you're there and there's, there's two other there's three crosses and Jesus is in the middle and just imagine that you're there and it becomes dark now it's, it's really dark I mean this is if you've ever been in an earthquake or a, what seems like the end of a world kind of thing whatever that would be for you, it's it's a very uh, you feel very very small and very very vulnerable. Darkness comes over the land for three hours, and uh, think of for those of you who are old enough to remember May 18th, 1980, and you're in Moses Lake because it got really really dark right in the middle of the day as Mount St. Helens spewed ashes over into that part of the world. And people, you know, they were literally, the quotation, the people thought it was the end. You know, I mean, it's, and why not? I mean, how, and, but it had that sense to it. Darkness came over the land. So I want to I look at what darkness means in the Bible, and then we're going to come back and look at how it affects Jesus and how, uh, what darkness means to us. But 
In the Bible, in general, darkness is associated with disintegration. God tends to integrate and bring order. So uh, this is disintegration. It's associated with death. It's associated with evil, uh, chaos, all of those things. It's opposed to God. It's, it's anti-God. So that's the kind of the big view of the word darkness or the theme of darkness in the Bible. If you go to Genesis chapter 1, take your Bibles, open them up to that very first line in the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a summary statement. That statement is actually a summary statement over the whole chapter. And then you have to go to verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1 to actually see what the... (laughs) That's where it starts, because it starts out not with order or creation. It starts out with this thing before that. And here's how it goes. that um, Now the earth was formless and empty, and the darkness was over the surface of the deep. Very, very hard for us to understand what that might look like. This is it's, it's a little bit of poetry here telling us what it might look like. It's very hard to grasp what that would be. So there's this thing there, this, this empty and void. How do you describe something that's empty and void? And, and there's darkness. And then we find this interesting statement that the Spirit of God was there hovering over the waters. And so you end up with a question right in, the, right in the first two sentences of the Bible. And it's the same question that we would often have ourselves just in our everyday life, maybe as we face tomorrow. And that is, is how does God relate to darkness? How does God, as we look at the cross, how does, where's God? That's the, the question that Jesus is going to ask here in just a sec. Where is God in this darkness? And you have two answers that um, religions of the world will give. One is that darkness and light are oppositional. They're, they're in dual. There's a dualism there. They're co-equal, and they're battling it out. And they're both very real. And as you look around this world, you can understand why that would be a way of explaining what we see in creation. Creation really isn't going anywhere. If anything, it's cyclical. Is, is the view here. And, uh, you know, sometimes good winds, sometimes evil winds, sometimes light winds, sometimes darkness winds, but in general, you know, you think of, of Syria, the images from Syria this week, darkness seems to have won the day, right? Or the images from the Holocaust where uh, the Jews were exterminated, millions of them, darkness seems to have won the day. And so you can see why that view has some uh, basis in reality. However, it is not the biblical view. The biblical view is that God, as in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the the darkness is here. The Spirit of God is hovering over. And what's Genesis, what's the next thing that God's going to do? And then God said, let there be light. And then the ordering of creation comes. That's That's where creation begins, is with light that pierces the darkness. So um, that is a little bit of an overview of how the Bible uh, would view. Um, now the question then is, for, for us, is, um, it, it, well, it, let, me, let me start with, say it this way. The, the cosmic view is reaffirmed in the scripture of God being over darkness in the ten plagues of Egypt. Number nine is there were three days of darkness that God sent over the Egyptians, those three days. And if you were an Egyptian, interestingly enough, the, the Israelites were part of 
they were in Egypt, but where they were, there was light shining. But for the Egyptians, it was totally dark for three days. It's interesting because the, the, the God that the Egyptians worshipped was the sun god. And so Yahweh, the God of Israel, is saying, I am over, so it's one way to in- interpret this, I am over your gods. I am over your darkness. And it, it lasted for three days. Now at a personal level, the psalmist in Psalm 139, probably the most personal psalm of all of them, he's trying to say, to find a place to get away from God. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever been there, but there are times where, in, in human relationships at least, you just need a break from that other person, right? It could be a child, a spouse, not my spouse, but you know, maybe yours. And, but you need that break. And the, the psalmist says, I just want to get away from you, and maybe if I go hide in the darkness, I can get away from you, because you're not in the darkness. And he goes to the darkness, and he says, even in the darkness, it's not dark to you. So, you have this theme in scripture of God being over the darkness and even in the darkness, which helps us to maybe understand what is going through with, with Jesus on the cross, because we have to ask the question, where is God? Where is God in that place? Personal application. Uh, this is where I, w- I want to make sure that we, before we move on to Jesus and what he struggled with, uh, I want to make sure that we, we think this thing through at a personal level. So darkness is common to our experiences in life, and it comes in many, many forms. And my guess is that if I had enough time to spend with each one of you right now, and if I just asked the question, where are you experiencing darkness in your life, you would give me a list. Not just one thing, but a list. And to various degrees, on a scale of 1 to 10 or whatever. But here's the, here's the point, and I'm, here's a few things up there. Look at the title first down at the bottom. Darkness is bracketed. It, it, it's bracketed in the sense of, of time. It is bracketed in the sense that it is, not, it is not sovereign, that God is over it. The Spirit of God is hovering over the deep. The Spirit of God will take chaos, and your story in life, you, may, you get a doctor's report or, or a financial report or something in your life, and it rocks your world, but your story is being written, and that's just one chapter. There's other chapters that are going to continue. The Spirit of God is able to weave out of the chaos of our lives, the raw material that we experience each day or each period of time, he writes chapters. And in the writing of those chapters, we have uh, a beautiful creative story. So it can come in sickness or loneliness or insecurity or anxiety or financial stress or grief or the pressure to perform. It can come in any number of ways. Those are just a few examples. But the beautiful thing is, it are the brackets. And, and it's, why, it's why we come here, to, to learn and to worship God together. He is the one who brackets the evil, the chaos, the disintegration of our lives. He is the creative spirit who hovers over us. He's hovering over us right now. He hovers over the cross, if you hear, if you hear that in the story. When, Jesus, when it's dark, the Spirit of God was hovering and then we're going to experience that next week as we get into the Easter story, what happens uh, in his creative, in the, in the new creation. So, with Jesus, what did he experience on the cross? How do we process that? And in the ninth hour, that would be at three o'clock, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. So right before he dies, right before he breathes his last, he says in, in the English translation, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
there is, I want to say this very, very humbly, there, there have been, I've, I've read a ton on this, there are books written on this, what did Jesus say, what, would, what, is, what did he mean, and my best to offer you is that it's a bit of a mystery, but I can do a little bit here to clear it up. And so the, the first, if we have a mystery, there's kind of on the one hand and on the other hand, and then we kind of do our best without forcing things at all. Okay, on the one hand, we know that Jesus was on the cross as a substitute for us. Uh, he was punished, uh, let's see, from Isaiah, the punishment that brought us peace was uh, upon him. That's how Isaiah says it in chapter 53. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He takes our punishment for us. That's very clear. Uh, anyone, who is cur- anyone who is hanging on a tree is cursed by God is a verse from the Old Testament that would apply here. So it's, You can see why he's crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 2 Corinthians 5 21 gives a bit more of a redemptive edge to it. And uh, God was in Christ. Uh, let's see here. God, God was in, or I'm sorry, I'll get, I'll get to that one. Uh, God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So that sense of punishment and sacrifice, it's there. We can't avoid that. It's there. But we have to avoid the excesses of taking that and thinking of God the Father pouring out his wrath upon his Son when there's more to the story than that. First of all, you might think of, uh, the, the Bible gives us this idea, actually, of the Father disciplining a Son in love. So the word love comes into this in a big way here. For God so loved the world. Well, we, this is not new, but we're, what, what the, where I'm going here is the cross is the emphasis is not, not on God's wrath, but it's upon His, it's upon His love. Paul says in, in that Second Corinthians passage that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. That when you see Christ on the cross, you're seeing God on the cross. That may be a new concept to you, but that's what Paul is saying. If you want to understand God, you look at His Son and you see Him dying for you. If you want to understand what God is all about, it's about Him loving you. And, and some kind of put the emphasis on the wrath of God being poured out on the cross. Well, that's not where I would put it. The, uh, there, there's a quote from a doctor who said to the patient who was experiencing great pain that I have more drugs than you have pain. And that, in that setting could be a place of hope. But what God is saying to us is, I have more love than you have sin. I have more grace than you have whatever in your life. It's a beautiful thing, the cross is. My love is stronger than your sin. Dostoevsky says that beauty will save the world. And when we look at Jesus dying on the cross, we think, how is that beautiful? And this is where we have to get into our imaginations. And, of course, artists are the best ones to help us in that way. Um, And um, the crucifixion has caught the eye of how many artists? I mean, if you Google art, imagery of the cross or crucifixion, uh, you'll have 
you'll be spending days probably looking at images of Christ. I want to just give you a couple. I'm going to give you two that I find really fascinating, and it gives you a, a taste of the different dimensions that the cross brings out. The first is from Mark Chagall, who is a Jewish, uh, uh, many have called him the greatest Jewish artist of the 20th century. This is called the White Crucifixion, and... Um, it was in 1938, and the current Pope, Pope Francis, has uh, called this his favorite of all of the crucifixion art. And it's, it's, it's full of irony. It's full. I hope you'll see some beauty in it. Um, first of all, it's, Jesus, as we know, was Jewish. But if you think of the history of Christians and Jews, it's been antagonistic. And so if you were to ask a Jewish person how they feel when they see a cross, typically they would say, we feel oppressed. Isn't that interesting? That's, that's the complexity of the relationship because Christians have tended to persecute Jews. Think of, of Hitler and the Nazis. And this, that's where this painting goes. Um, Jesus has a prayer shawl, a Jewish prayer shawl on here. And all of these people in the background, they're basically depicting the Nazis uh, persecuting the Jews in the 1930s during this time called Kristallnacht. There was a, a, a night where they broke all the windows of the Jewish shopkeepers, and it was, it, historically it's called Kristallnacht. And what, uh, what Chagall in his Jewish imagination was trying to say here is that when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He remembers that Jesus was Jewish crying that out, and now the Jewish people themselves are crying out. And in that sense, Jesus understands or identifies with the Jewish people, and they're crying out as Hitler was pushing down, as darkness was coming in upon them. One amazing use of art to help us understand the cross. But this is, this is a, a Russian artist, Nicholas Gay, 1893. And the, the, there's two reasons that I, I, point, I pulled this out. One is that it's, it's one of the few pieces of art that depicts darkness, total darkness behind Jesus on the cross. And the second reason uh, is that in Russia, the, the Tsar, who in those days, uh, he banned this um, piece of art. This tells you how times have changed because it was too realistic, and he considered it blasphemy. But it does give you a sense of the reality of the pain that Jesus went through on the cross. All right, I want to get to the last part here as darkness approaches as that as that day draws to an end three o'clock is when jesus breathed his last and then we don't know how long you know what time the sun went down but there's there's some that's where the activity happens next jesus is now dead and real quickly i'm going to give you an overview the the first thing that happens is well uh, after he dies is that the roman centurion or i'm sorry the veil is torn and it is torn from top to bottom there's significance in that. Top to bottom. How does a veil get rent from top to bottom? And it it's implies that access to God is now available to all. That God is, has opened his heart. With Jesus on the cross, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That symbol of outstretched arms saying, come on, I want you. God's saying that to you and to me, inviting. Now we have that same sort of access open as the veil is torn and people 
can now approach God in a way that they could not before. And the first one that we find approaching God is a centurion. Now this centurion, we don't know a whole lot about him, but a Roman centurion, you know, every day in the Roman world, there were people crucified on crosses. This is not a unique event. (laughs) Hundreds, thousands of people dying on crosses across the whole Roman world. There were crosses outside of each village. It's where you got rid of people that were troublemakers either thieves or political insurrectionists. And Jesus was accused of being a political insurrectionist. So this guy would have seen many people die. And one of the things that happens, if you're, especially if you're a soldier, and you see many people die, is your heart gets hard because it's the only thing that you can do to process it. You'll, you'll hear that voice from people in war. So this hardened uh, centurion noticed something about Jesus. Didn't, he had never, as far as we know, seen Jesus alive in, before this. And he noticed something in Jesus' death that opened up his heart. There was, the veil was torn in his heart. And he sensed there was something here that was very unique. And he makes a statement, surely this man is the Son of God. This is the only place in Mark's Gospel where we find that declaration except when Mark begins his gospel in verse 1 of chapter 1 where he says this is the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God and now we find the Roman centurion voicing what Mark had said in that first verse if we went way back 42 weeks there it is we've come full circle so um, there you go we have that happening and then we have this story this is where I want to go very early or I'm sorry in in um, It was the preparation day, verse 42. That is the day before the Sabbath. And so as evening approached, Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Uh, What do we know about Joseph? Well, we know that he was wealthy, he was prominent, and he was a Pharisee. Uh, He was one who probably voted for Jesus to die on that charge of blasphemy in the Sanhedrin. So he was part of the Sanhedrin, the the ruling body. But we also can guess, based on what we see here, is that he had second thoughts. The veil is being torn inside of him. And uh, the Spirit is hovering over the darkness of his life, bringing something out of it. And uh, in those second thoughts, uh, he knows that he has to do something that could cost him dearly. He has to risk both wealth and prestige. It tells us that he's a man of character. There are times in your life you would hope this for yourself, but I think as parents you would hope this for your kids, where your kids would come to that place in life where they say, I don't care what it costs and I don't care who laughs at me. I'm going to do the right thing. That's one of those times for Joseph. And it says that he's a man of character. Huge character. And I pray that I would want, or I would pray that for you, that you would want that for yourself and for your children. I don't care how much it costs, and I don't care who laughs at me, I'm going to do the right thing. You want that, right? Come on, I need some nods here. Because that's a challenging thing to want for your children or for yourself. Well, Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate. And um, Pilate, 
you need to know this, that typically the family had the right to ask for a body. That was normal. And um, unless that person who committed the crime, it was a crime of high treason, which is what Jesus was accused of. And then they would just leave the body out there for a couple of days. And first of all, Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead. He'd only been on the cross six hours. The average was something like two days. And then if you're a a person who's committed treason, they might leave you up there longer, just as an example, because, you know, Rome is Rome and we don't want a bunch of insurrectionists running around. And they would let the birds come and have their way with your body before it was taken down. This is all really ugly stuff. I'm sorry to bring it up, but that's the way it was. But Pilate, you think, based on what we know earlier of him, is that he felt some guilt, that he knew that Jesus was not a bad man. He knew that the Jews, when they brought Jesus to him to be crucified, that the Jews had their own agenda, their own jealousies, their own envy, and that's why they brought Jesus, but he got stuck. He was not a man of character who could pay the price, regardless of the cost, or be laughed at. That's the, so we see the contrast with Joseph there. And he had given in, but now he has second thoughts, and he allows Joseph to take the body. Okay, so you're Joseph. Just, this is where you, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. And go ahead and stand up, because it'll help. It'll help you get your thoughts together. We're going to do a little exercise here. And um, I want you to imagine, go ahead and close your eyes, if you will, and then we'll, we'll have communion in the wake of this. But close your eyes. You're Joseph of Arimathea. You've gone to Pilate. You've asked for the body, and Pilate delivers it over to you. The body of Jesus is in your arms. And you look down on the one that you voted to crucify or that led to his crucifixion. And what do you feel as you hold this body? And then you've heard a rumor maybe that Jesus had said something to his followers like this, that take, eat, this is my body. What does that mean as you hold his body, his lifeless body? And then you carry the body to the place where the stone has been carved out to lay him down and you lay him there and then you're going to wrap him in cloth linen cloth but the custom was that you couldn't wrap him in linen cloth until you had wiped all the blood off that body And this all has to be done before sunset, before the Sabbath begins at sunset. You're wiping the blood, and there's a lot of blood off his body. And you heard that same rumor kind of thing that he said once to his disciples. This is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many and you wonder if many would include you based on what you've done 
Could it? Could a miracle really happen? Father in heaven, enlighten our hearts now to your love, which is expressed to us in this meal that you have prepared for us, the body of Christ for us, the blood of Christ shed for us. We thank you, O Lord, that the Spirit of God hovers over the darkness of our hearts, is writing stories, is bringing us to better places, And ultimately, we will be with you. And we remember that as well as we come to this table. And we thank you that beauty does save the world. The beauty of the cross. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.